Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Do it over and over again, making your existing products even more successful. I love studying what makes teams high-performing. Do you and your product teams have the characteristics required for success? Do you know what they are? The Product Team Performance Study has been identifying the characteristics of high-performing teams since 2012. Of the 31 factors found through the studies, I discuss five of the most significant ones with Greg Geraci, Principal Researcher. Greg is the CEO of Actuation Consulting, a global provider of product management training, consulting, and advisory services to some of the world's most well-known organizations. I've known Greg for several years now through his work originally on the Prodbock book, which is the Guide to the Product Management and Marketing Body of Knowledge, as well as our mutual involvement in PDMA and AIPMM professional associations for product managers. It's going to be a great discussion with Greg, but if you also want to go see the written notes of what we talk about, we take notes of all the highlights, the key summary that you need. You'll find that at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 295. And you'll also find there an action guide. It's a one-page PDF to help you put the concepts we discuss into action. So go check that out. Download that at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 295. Greg, thank you so much for coming back to the Everyday Innovators and sharing what you've learned from your recent survey of product managers. Thanks. It's great to be here, Chad. So this is a study that you've done since 2012. It hasn't happened every year, but many of the years in between. I think this is version six, right? The sixth time you've done it? That is correct. Okay. And it's kind of a performance study. You look at what separates organizations that are really excelling in product management and product work uh, contrasting that with those that are struggling, right? So it's a great kind of benchmarking study. Perfectly said. Okay. And we've talked about this before. I'll put a link to the last one that we talked about, but I love getting this update from you and what's going on in our industry. And really, <clears throat> excuse me, for some tips for listeners to think about the work that they're doing. Wow. What, what is maybe that one thing that I could start adopting as a practice that I'm not really emphasizing right now that can help my work be better and stand out in the organization. So I think it's really helpful for listeners. So Great. we're gonna we're gonna dive in first. Just in, any broad differences in this study versus the last one that you did? Yeah, probably help for me to just give a little bit of context to some of the listeners who may not be familiar and start there, and then I'll tell you what's different this time around. Excellent. So this year we continued to follow our tried and true method, uh, survey method of conducted regression analysis on the survey data, and like in past years, we use an independent third party. Uh, statistician who conducts the regression analysis on our behalf. And that's part of, I think, which what makes the rigor of our study somewhat unique. Uh, we actually undertake an effort that not a lot of organizations do to actually run regression analysis on the survey findings. What's different this year is approximately 40% of the questions are new and typically derived from what we're either observing during the course of our consulting or uh, through Q&A with live audiences. So forums such as this or other places where we have the chance to engage, you know, with people like yourself in the industry or those who are practitioners, we get a lot of good questions uh, from the audience. Also, this year, our sponsor Planbox submitted five questions that were centered around innovation that we haven't actually dug so deeply into in the past. 
And the other 60% of questions are either those that we've been tracking on a longitudinal basis or our demographic questions that help us better understand our respondents. Mm -hmm. For instance, we've been tracking product development methodology adoption rates since 2012. And uh, there's bar graphs inside the white paper that sort of show how the ebb and flow of different methodologies have shifted over time. We can talk more about that if you'd like later on. And one of the biggest changes is that I think when we launched this research back in 2012, it was exceedingly difficult to find hard data on many of the topics that we were interested as consultants in knowing ourselves. And so now after we've conducted this for six times, so years of research, mm -hmm. you know, our clients or anyone interested in answers to questions about product management, innovation, UX staffing data, methodologies, product team performance, a wide variety of topics can easily find information, you know, in our white papers or in past um, um, podcasts like yours. Excellent. The, one of the reason why I like the study so much is because it provides us some important insights um, into best practices in a sense. And I'm always a little bit leery about talking about best practices because they have to be tailored for the organization. But you've identified through the study work, you know, at this point, 31 significant factors that contribute to success in product organizations. There is a large study that the PDMA Association does every few years. And every few years, it, it, it comes and goes. I think the last one was actually 2012, I think, the last time they, mm -hmm. they did that. Wasn't uh, PDMA involved in, in maybe just getting the word out for the study for you? Also? Yeah, the PDMA was a very strong partner of ours this year. They played an active role all the way through the process. So not only did they help with distribution, they helped with survey create um, question creation. Okay. So we ran all the questions past them to just get their feedback on them before we made it available. Uh, they helped with the distribution of the survey, pushing it out to a wide variety of people in the industry. They helped when edit the white paper when we actually had a final draft that we wanted them to review before publication, and then they actively have been pushing out via their website and through social media information about the study, such as where people can download it on their website and things along those lines. And this partnership continues as I'll be doing an upcoming uh, webinar for PDMA very shortly. I don't remember the exact date, but I think it's next month. And then um, we'll also probably be speaking at their national conference on this topic as well. So they've been a great partner. Excellent. Yeah. Listeners may have heard me talk about PDMA before. This is the Product Development and Management Association. They're the oldest and, in my opinion, most credible, in part because they do sponsor a lot of research into our industry, but most the oldest professional organization for product developers, product innovators, and managers. And also, they are the sponsors of the JPIM, the Journal of Product Innovation Management, which is the most reputable journal out there for academic research into innovation management. It is a group of practitioners. I don't want to leave that out. It's a great place to meet <laughs> practitioners. Okay, so any difference in just, you know, who were the participants? Can you kind of give us a picture of completed the survey? Sure. So we're pretty consistent year over year in terms of the type of people that we target. What we're really after from a demographic perspective is we're interested in hearing from anyone actively involved in product development. So that ranges from product managers, product owners, development managers, engineers, project managers, UX professionals, etc. So just to highlight it, anyone who's actively involved in product development at any level, the key is actively involved. We want people who are actually touching aspects of the process 
process to tell us what their experiences are, what their perceptions are, you know, how they're doing and how their organizations are doing. We know um, based on the demographic questions that we ask, and this is held true for from the inception of the study, that on average, about 97% of survey respondents play an active role in either creating or enhancing products or services in their organizations. So our targeting has been very good. You know, we're in the high 90s on a consistent basis. This year, approximately 54% of the survey respondents were either product managers or product owners. Wow. From a historical perspective, that's actually higher than the norm. It tends to normally be in the 40s. But part of that we attribute to the fact that obviously we work with the PDMA. Chad, you helped us this year as well. I have a broad-based network of uh, people in the industry on the product management side. So a lot of this comes from, you know, personal relationships and trust of, you know, people who, who either have become familiar with the study and participated year over year or people who, you know, have been close partners with us who assist us who have a lot of access to the product community having said that we you know the other 46 percent is a wide variety of different people just as i mentioned earlier in roles slightly more than half of the respondents report to a c-level executive or to a vp so this year it's tending to skew towards the upper spectrum a little bit additionally about 51 percent of respondents are in the hardware or software technology vertical this has been consistent since 2012. the other verticals in case people are interested are services consumer products education government and then we have another category for people who don't associate themselves with any of the verticals that we sort of call out in the survey and finally from a company revenue standpoint we had strong responses in all segments. We have three segments. And the one that actually was a little bit larger than the rest this year was the 50 million to 2 billion, which represented about 45% of the total survey respondents. So it's not so much that it changes year over year. I'm happy to say it's actually amazingly consistent. I think the biggest change was that we had a louder voice from the product managers and product owners this year than we typically have, Chad. Yeah, glad to see that. The part of my interest in that 54% number of product managers, product owners, is just because we go by so many different titles, right? And right. that's one thing you've always seen is how many different job titles in your respondents. And as a product manager, I was a project manager mm-hmm. for many years doing product work and would right. not have thought about the difference at all, right? Yep. So, and I wonder some of that, some of that may just be the people that did have access to the survey that knew about it. But also, I, I think there is a, a little bit more of a groundswell in terms of product managers being recognized as a distinct role and that mm-hmm. title, along with product owner, being used more often now. Yeah, I think that's particularly true in the technology space. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in other verticals, it's not always as clear brand managers and others tend right. to, you know, and marketing managers often play product management type roles, yep. um, some with more expanded responsibilities, some with less. So you're right. It's highly variable. But in the technology space, I think it's becoming pretty clear, you know, what a product manager is and does and more consistent. Good. Okay. So I mentioned that you've identified 31 significant factors that contribute to product team success. And that's been growing over the, the, the studies here since 2012. This new study had five new factors. So I thought we should focus on those five new factors, right? What is emerging recently? Can you just take us through that? And since I did have the chance to, like everyone else, we can download the results of this from your website. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. So the, the, First one is connecting activities to business strategy. 
which I find fascinating because whenever I teach product management or help organizations with product management, we start with strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and so this being on the list for the first time, I'm really interested to hear what you think about this. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're going to be disappointed with uh, sort of <laughs> how many organizations actually make strategy transparent to their product team members. But let me run through the data and okay. then we can talk about it. So, you know, our regression analysis shows that a product team's ability to connect their daily activities back up to the company's overarching business strategy is highly correlated with success, financial success in particular. However, and this is the sad part, Chad, only 27% of survey respondents this year indicated that their product team is able to connect their daily activities directly to the company's business strategy. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's actually uh, very disappointing, I think, for both you and I. I'd, I'd certainly like to see that more, particularly given what the reg regression analysis indicates that it's correlated with higher levels of success. Most respondents are indicating that their organizations either fail to effectively communicate the strategy, the company strategy to the product teams, or they indicate that there isn't a business overarching business strategy at all that they can connect their activities right. to. So if you look at this, you look back over the years from a longitudinal perspective, over the last seven years specifically, the story's even more discouraging. I'm sad, it's sad to report. The amount of product teams that could connect their daily activities to the company strategy actually decreased by 10 percentage points over the course of the last seven year. So it was 37% originally and has on a, been on a downward decline ever since. Hmm. So I think there's a bunch of reasons why we think this is happening. Not so much the decay, but why, you know, why, why organizations are having such difficulty with this, you know, but one of the things we know is that if companies want to improve the performance of their product teams and their overall financial performance, they really need to shore up communication and transparency regarding overarching company strategy and how product teams connect to it. I think there are some benefits that organizations need to keep in mind that may entice them to go down this path. One is doing so will help product teams make better short and long-term decisions. Mm. You know, if the engineers understand the direction the product's taking, they may make different platform decisions or technology decisions that would better support, you know, the overarching strategy over the long term. If, if, they don't understand this, they're less likely to have the context to, to make good decisions. And this can be costly for organizations. We see it all the time. And it also leads to a clear understanding of what the strategic priorities are for the organization and how individual product team members' actions can positively or negatively influence, you know, the outcomes, right? Yeah. And then one additional point, it's also likely to increase product team members' commitment to their work efforts. We see this all the time. Many organizations, you know, put very talented team members who often dislike working on projects that don't appear to add value to the organization and they get discouraged and often they leave. This doesn't have to be the case, you know, and I think, you know, once again, helping those talented team members understand what their contribution is and how it connects back up right. to what the organization's trying to achieve can really make a big difference, both in morale as well as outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. It's an element from Maslow's hierarchy that we can talk about for motivation, yeah. right? And that middle part is the is the social level, and people often think about that as well. We need the team members to know each other, and, you know, to to build rapport. Obviously important, 
But mm-hmm. the aspect that Basil was really uncovering there was you need to be doing valuable work. You need to understand how the work that you do connects to the bigger picture and feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. Right. Um, I think it so, often gets lost in translation yeah. inside organizations, unfortunately. Yeah, it does. Um, okay, so I, I think this is a really important point. So even though the data shows that we're not connecting the strategy as nearly as much as we could, it's mm-hmm. an important area and one that we need to spend time on thinking. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. I think one thing that comes up, at least with many of the organizations that I'm in contact with, Mm -hmm. the product managers feel like they're stuck too often responding to more tactical, short-term level tasks, frankly, often driven by a sales opportunity. Like, we we need to add this new feature to get this done, Mm -hmm. and they don't have a good grasp of what the bigger picture actually is. Right. Yeah, I think we can talk a little bit more about sort of prioritization and time management and a little bit later, because uh, it comes up with one of the other uh, regression okay. analysis factors, if you don't mind. Yeah, yes. And let's move on to the next one, too. <laughs> okay. And, and the next one you listed there was accountability for, sati- for customer satisfaction objectives that the product team members understand and are accountable for the customer metrics in a sense. Right. So customer satisfaction is becoming increasingly important to product teams. So I guess that would be sort of the the opening high note. You know, from our standpoint as industry consultants, you know, we believe product teams need to be held accountable for performance. I know that a lot of teams don't like to hear that, but the reality is, is, you know, we think it's really important. It's a big investment that organizations make. However, when we asked this question um, about metrics and, you know, what product teams were being held accountable to back in 2015, there was a wide range of responses. But at that time, there wasn't a single metric that actually stood out as being the dominant metric, if you will, that all product teams or at least the majority of product teams were being held accountable to. That was back in 2015. I think this is one of the areas that actually we've seen improvement, you know, from questions that we've asked on a longitudinal basis. So a bit of good news here, I guess. So this year, our regression analysis shows that customer satisfaction is now the dominant metric that product teams are being held accountable to. In fact, 51% of organizations are now using this as an accountability metric for product teams. And just in case your listeners are interested, the other in descending order metrics that, that teams are being held accountable to, but not at the same level as customer satisfaction are quality, 
velocity and throughput, profitability, top line revenue growth, and market share. And then in our survey, we have two others that are, that are in there. I don't know, you know, what the metrics are, and not we're not being held being held accountable to any metric. So those are sort of the two catch basins for the overflow. So you know, there are a range of different metrics that product team members are being held accountable to, but customer satisfaction has really risen to the top, and we view that as really great news because it's highly correlated customer satisfaction being the accountability metric with improved performance. So the data, the regression analysis actually shows that. So this trend, you know, using customer satisfaction as an accountability metric for product teams has risen 10% since 2015, which now makes it the most dominant criteria for accountability for product teams overall. So we're heartened by that. Yeah, hopefully we're not just as some software development teams do, since that's much of my background, you know, kind of throwing stuff over the wall and leaving it to marketing or someone to figure out if anyone cares about it, right? Right. I, I like the connection. I've always been driven that way that if we're making something, its purpose is to satisfy, create value for customers. I think I don't it's know, more, more tangible, I think, right. for organizations, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if there were any questions asked about this. I'm curious about tools that are being used to measure customer satisfaction. You know, you know, Chad, that might be a good follow-on question for next year. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to make a note right now. As I told you, we take that feedback and then list. And we often dive into topics of interest to us yep. at deeper levels and successive surveys. So I'm going to make a note of that one. Thank okay. you. Absolutely. Okay, on to the third new factor. This has to do with the uh, with user stories and the backlog. Um, unravel that for us. What, what you found. Yeah, this one's actually pretty straightforward, and I don't have as much of an editorial um, opinion about this one because it's pretty black and white. So, what the regression analysis showed was that as it relates to backlog organization, it turns out that product teams that size the entire backlog demonstrate higher levels of performance. But I guess the thing that's a bit concerning that the data also showed was that only 17% of respondents actually indicated that they undertook this effort to size the entire backlog. That's in contrast to those teams that size a quarter of the backlog or size only several sprints worth of stories at a time. So, you know, the data just was pretty black and white that basically said if you take the additional steps to do the entire backlog, you're more likely to experience higher levels of performance than those that don't. Okay. It's that simple. Okay. So so this is the initial backlog of user stories that mm-hmm. we have going into a project, our understanding of the requirements, the expectations, what we're, we're trying to develop together or make depending on the product. Right. And doing that extra level of work to understand what is really involved in delivering each one of those. That's right. And then that, like, take that, since we're talking backlogs, take that into our sprint planning. Yes. And sadly, only 17%. There's a lot of opportunity out there to, yeah. you know, for other teams to adopt this and improve their performance. Yeah. There, there's, you know, I my original background way back when was very waterfall driven, right? Mm-hmm. And we stopped that very quickly because it just wasn't working for us, right? And unfortunately, I did not write the book. If I would have wrote the book, it, it would not have been called Scrum. Um, mm-hmm. Might have been called Epicycles because we actually called our sprints Epicycles. Huh. But it was pre pre Scrum days, right? But we were doing mm-hmm. two week intervals and something that looks very much like Scrum these days. Oh, interesting. Um, and that just came out of necessity out, out of what we were finding that would work for us. But I think my experience with that kind of waterfall approach taught me the value of doing the planning 
early and robustly, even if you don't follow the plan, frankly, right? That mm -hmm. you, you uncover information in doing that planning. And it makes sense to me that if you're going to, to come up with the backlog, do the analysis to understand really the, the size of the work there helps you unravel more of what you need to accomplish and makes that kind of fuzzy front end that takes place in the beginning of projects mm -hmm. at least a little less fuzzy for you. Right. Absolutely. I agree with that. Okay. So on to, I think we're at fourth factor here. So, and this one is probably my favorite of all of them, although I really do like the strategy one that we started with, because this has to do with spending time with customers, which I am a big fan of. If we are trying to develop value for customers, we need to understand their problems. Tell us what you found out about this. Sure. So we found that how product managers spend their time actually matters. So companies that encourage their product managers to get outside and spend 30% or more of their time outside the building in the field were highly correlated with higher levels of success. Once again, sort of the, the sad note in all of this, much like our previous one, is that only a minority of organizations, this time 11%, appear to enable their product managers to spend that much time in the field, for example, with customers, prospects at trade shows, etc. I think there's a variety of reasons for this. We see this a lot on the consulting side. The first has to do with lack of executive support. I'm not laying this on the executives themselves because there's a variety of reasons. This is only one factor, but it's often very expensive to have your product managers in the field 30% or more of the time and actively engaged outside the organization. So it requires strong support from the leadership team, both sort of principled support that this is a concept that we believe in, as well as financially backing it. And, you know, a lot of times that falls on the CEO to be the one that sort of champions that. But it's unfair to sort of leave it, you know, laying at the CEO's feet, because to be honest, for this to be sustainable, the head of sales, finance, other functional leadership needs to be supportive of product management, spending the time in the field as well. And the financial commitment, because, you know, it's a zero sum game. The dollars that get invested in product managers in the field need to come from someplace, right? So, you know, having the support of executive leadership in a much broader fashion makes that a much easier path than if it's just the CEO himself or herself championing that. I think one of the other contributing factors that we see a lot, and, you know, we, we do a lot of training for product managers and we work closely with product managers and consulting engagements. And, you know, product managers are pretty transparent people for the most part. They will admit their own deficiencies mm -hmm. if you get into a conversation with them. And, you know, what product managers will, will often acknowledge is that their own shortcomings in terms of time management, proactive behaviors, and their own biases, for instance, more comfortable being inside the organization doing tactical activities as opposed to outside the organization thinking more strategically, you know, if they're skewed that way tend to influence you know their their own ability to be able to get outside the field and make use of that investment you know what i mean so product managers themselves have to take steps to improve their own shortcomings if this is going to be successful over the longer term. So, and I know that you had a conversation, I think with Roman Pitchler not too long ago, where he was sharing some tips about how to prioritize better and time management related skills. You know, for us, this is the number one area that we think product managers can improve. And we spend a lot of our time in training courses ourselves, teaching people tips and tactics for being able to do that successfully. 
one other thing that's probably worth pointing out, and this ties back a little bit to Steve Blank's interview that you had not too I long ago I was going to say, this well. is Steve Blank's get out of the office, right? Exactly. Yeah. Regardless of the source of the current limitations on how product managers spend their time, you know, organizations really need to rethink how they utilize their product managers and optimize external engagement. Mm-hmm. So this goes directly back to what Steve Blank was talking about. I, I know he doesn't necessarily frame it as product managers specifically, but that, you know, as part of doing good due diligence, you know, for either starting a business or a product line, it's important to engage with clients. So, you know, it definitely shows up in the data here as well. So, you know, I know Steve Blank's a big believer in that. And then finally on this topic, you know, our regression analysis shows that product managers who spend that 30% or more actually lead to improved performance for both their product team and the organization overall. So, you know, unfortunately, as we, we said, only 11% of, you know, organizations are embracing this concept and funding it and, you know, providing the necessary support and the product managers are, you know, optimizing this. But there's a wide range of opportunities and we really think the industry really needs to rethink how product managers time is being used yeah uh, I, I think there's a lot of myths around how we come up with new ideas and mm-hmm. you know, uh, some approaches are the you know spaghetti approach throw it against the wall and see what sticks and many times I run into a c-suite leaders and c-suite leaders are not meant to be experts in product management and innovation mm-hmm. right that they did not grow up through the ranks doing that so it's not surprising that they don't understand some of the details that we do. But they, they approach it from a perspective of, well, we'll find out once it's in the marketplace. Right. right. It's like, we're wasting a lot of effort doing that. Instead, let's spend time, that's 30%, right, with our customers understanding their problem better so that we have a better idea from the beginning of what's going to add satisfaction for them. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, and I think product managers that, you know, the the ones that do get the funding to be able to spend that much time, obviously are adding value back to the organization because they're continually being able to do that. And I think that's something that we as product people could be better at as well, is recognizing the level of investment comes with a certain commitment, you know, that that we have to be visibly adding value for the investment that the organization's making in that time that we spend in the field. And that's an area where I think product managers, again, could, could look to improve. Not everybody's as methodical about, you know, collecting and sharing that information in a way that's transparent to the people who make those investments in the organization, you know? Yeah. I think one factor is not all product managers are wired to spend time with customers. So some of us tend to be very introverted. And mm-hmm. on the temperament scales, I am at the far extreme of introversion, right? And mm-hmm. I just learn to interact in ways that doesn't show that. Yeah. Um, but I'm also exceptionally curious. So anyone listening that says, man, 30% with customers, that just makes me uncomfortable thinking about spending that much time with them. Just start with curiosity, right? This doesn't have to be too hard. Just be curious about the work that your customer does and find out more about that and go down that path. I'm going to use this number to help when I get the question that comes up, well, do we have product owners and product managers? Is that one person? You know, Mm -hmm. I think this is helpful in responding to that. You know, can that, however you're defining this role, can that person be spending 30% of their time externally? Mm -hmm. And if not, then maybe we need to define the role differently and and maybe break that up in a more internal facing or more external facing role. 
Yep, completely agree with you, Chad. I mean, size of organization comes into play here, I think. You know, if you're a startup, um, you're probably going to be spending time, you know, out there, but in that mid-sized role where you're still a jack of all trades, even though there's more specialization in the organization, I think it's harder to get the commitment from the organization because you're doing both. You're wearing both hats, the downstream sort of technical as well as the strategic one, and you're going to skew towards what your your natural bias is. You know, we all do that, even yep. subconsciously. Consciously. So that's probably the area where, you know, it's most difficult to, to make that change. Okay. And the fifth factor now that came up as new is using profitability when prioritizing requirements. Tell us about that one. Okay. Well, as we saw in the regression analysis this year, emphasizing profitability as the primary criteria in pri requirements prioritization processes positively impacts performance. So, the, the, once again, the, the, the underbelly of this is, unfortunately, only 39% of organizations actually even use profitability as a requirements criterion. In fact, the leading requirements, um, leading requirements criteria is size of customer, which, you know, seems intuitive, followed by risk. That would be, that would incorporate technical market and product risk. Then development cost would be the next, followed by internal stakeholder influence, then technical considerations around architecture, stability, and scalability, and finally revenue. Profitability is the seventh most commonly used prioritization metric. Unfortunately, it's also the one that's most closely correlated with success on the product team and at an organizational level. Um, one other thing that emerged from past studies that's probably worth noting here, Chad, even though it isn't part of this year's white paper, in the past, we found a negative correlation when organizations rely upon development cost as a development criteria. It's actually negatively correlated with high performance, and we've talked about this one at length in past white papers, but it's important to point that out as it's like the third or fourth highest currently in use. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think what organizations need to do is embrace profitability as a metric, as the primary metric, if they want to improve their product team's performance going forward. It's the quickest path to getting there. Okay. And there's a much larger discussion we could have just about what is a prioritization, you know, checklist or, or sorting yes. mechanism we should use. But this is really important, you know, figuring out at a product level what features one should be working on. And then at the portfolio level, which projects we're going after and right. putting profitability, you know, at, hopefully at the top, it sounds like it needs to be yes. uh, in that mix of uh, criteria that we look at sh should be a, a key consideration for us. Should. Okay, this is excellent. We've gone through the five new factors. I know there's more details we could talk through in there. I will include a link in the show notes uh, to the white paper that kind of summarizes the study, the data that was collected, and these five key factors. And anyone that wants to reach out to you to get more detail about this, or, you know, as we're talking, it just comes to me that what a great resource this is for you and your group in terms of being able to help organizations with details, right? You can come in and, and do analysis with them and make it clear, you know, okay, based on these years of data that we've gotten, these are the specific areas where you need to improve because you have that data available. Great. So there may be ones that are interested in, in that work as well. How can people find out about that and get in touch with you? 
Okay. Well, our latest research is available on our website's landing page. So anybody that wants to access it can go to actuationconsulting.com. That's A-C-T-U-A-T-I-O-N. It's also available at our partner PDMA's website. For If you're a PDMA member, you can download it there. Mm-hmm. Or you can get access to the research at Planbox, our sponsor's website, because it's also available there. So there's plenty of ways okay. to get access to the research. Um, getting to your point about like the factors. We only post the current white paper uh, at this point in time, but if anybody has interest regarding the past factors, uh, which are no longer available on our website, you can feel free to reach out to me to learn more, and I'd be happy to help listeners gain access to past white papers or their findings, and you can reach me at greg at actuationconsulting.com, or feel free to give us a call. Excellent. So appreciate that contact information. I'll make sure all those links are in the show notes so people can find those. And as listeners are used to, I love innovation quotes. Uh, love how they inspire me. Hope they inspire others listening as well. What do you have for us for an uh, innovation quote? Chad, I cheated. I've got two quotes. I know you usually ask for one, but I, I put two together. Let's and, go uh, with it. Okay. They're connected. So, so the first one's from a, a gentleman by the name of Joseph Campbell. And it says, if the path before you is clear, you're probably on somebody else's. And the reason I like it is because I think all of us involved with product development related activities at any level recognize that innovation isn't easy. And, you know, Joseph's comment is, if it is, somebody else probably blazed that trail. So it is true. Innovation's not easy. The path's full of a lot of twists and turns. Think about Tesla, for instance, and all the travails that they've gone through over time. You know, there there are many obstacles, basically, in innovation, and charting a new course is often difficult. But I find that it comes with exceptional rewards, and it's worth staying the course. And I like this quote because it summarizes the perspective that it seems easy easy, you're probably on the wrong path, and that somebody else has already been there. So, But the reason why I wanted a second one is because I think while it does a good job of pointing out sort of that, that innovation is not an easy process, I think all innovators are acutely aware of the role of perseverance, you know, in terms of whether it's a new business or a new product and, you know, what's required to do that. And so Thomas Edison had a nice quote about this. He says, our greatest weakness lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is always to try one more time. And, you know, as I think back to launching Actuation Consulting as a company, there were just so many things that we needed to figure out to get to the point that we're at today. What's the right business model? Where do we want our brand to stand for? Who did we need to target? And what's the correct messaging? What's our staffing model going to look like? And the, the list just goes on. It would have been easy to get discouraged, I think, early on and walk along this path. But I think most successful innovation projects or companies all go down a journey like this. And to me, you know, it's what makes it rewarding is, is actually overcoming all of that. And sometimes all it takes is perseverance, you know, and a, a good idea to find long-term success, which can be difficult, but it's often very rewarding. rewarding. So that's why I like those two quotes. Excellent. I was not aware of the second one. And Thomas Edison, right, is someone I've read about. And so I really appreciate that one. There's a Japanese proverb I like, which is uh, fall down seven times, get up eight. And it's just a notion that, you know, you have to keep trying, keep keep going, right? And I I like that one from Thomas Edison. So thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, Again, I just want to reiterate, I never do these podcasts, uh, right? I, I don't get compensated for these at all. But we've known each other for a while through different circles, including PDMA. Very much respect the 
work that you do. I think this body of knowledge that you've accumulated through these surveys is exceptionally helpful to organizations and anyone that is looking to understand where they have opportunities for improving them, their performance through a statistical analysis that has credibility behind it, you can really help them with that. So you have my personal endorsement to people to get help with that in that area. And if anyone wants to work on that together, I'd be glad to do that with you as well. So Greg, appreciate your time. Thanks, Chad. Um, can I just sneak in a thank you to you as well? I want to just thank you for your support with this year's survey. You know, you helped push out the survey for us, the, the membership and your listeners. And, uh, you know, that was very valuable to us and it meant a lot. So I just wanted to say thank you. Appreciate it. I'm glad we could talk more about it. <laughs> Same here, Chad. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you can create products that your customers love. Check out the summary of all the highlights we discussed with Greg, including that action guide, so you can quickly and easily put into action the key concepts at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 295. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.